This is Being Human. I'm your host, Richard Atherton. Gene Xu, creator and host of the China Leadership Dilemma podcast, a show that explores nuances of culture across the deepest levels of awareness. Gene, I'm very excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you, Richard. I'm excited to be here too. Right. And it looks like you're having a wonderful sunny day out in LA. Is that right? Yeah, Southern California. In fact, too much lighting. It's making me look dark on the front end. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, yes. So let's let's dive right in. The the podcast in it. Uh, this the the China leadership dilemma. So tell us more about the podcast and what you explore on and what that's about. Well, my podcast is about a concept that I experienced myself, and uh, it comes from. So I started off as an engineer, and I used to work at Motorola and Philips. So uh, in in technology, uh, there's this concept called the innovator's dilemma. And it explains, it was written by a Clayton Christensen, a Harvard Business School professor in the 90s, and explains why large, successful technology companies ultimately fail. And not to get into the details, but it, they basically fail because they continue to do what made them successful. And they continue to milk their cash cow, and they don't react to new disruptive technologies fast enough. So that's the dilemma. Do you stop milking your cash cow and change your, your, your way of innovation? Or you know, that's the dilemma that these large tech companies go through. The China leadership dilemma is analogous to that. And when a foreigner like myself, I was born and raised in the United States, when a foreigner like myself gets assigned to work in China as an expat or as a manager or as a leader, uh, we're usually selected because we were successful within what we did for the company prior to the assignment. So we were already leaders. And when we go to China, what has made us successful outside of China will not work in China. And right. most of the reasons why it doesn't work is because the cultural dichotomies, the value systems, the culture, the habits, the perceptions, they're just misaligned with what typical, so I don't want to stereotype, but it, it's misaligned with what general Westerners feel should be the proper way to communicate or the proper way to do business. And ultimately what happens is they think they're using their standard MO or modus operandi and they're behaving as they would or they would treat their employees in the US and then suddenly they're experiencing kind of like a negative backlash. And these negative backlashes are subtle and then they amplify over time. And that ultimately results in something that I call a China leadership dilemma, which is a disappointment that was unexpected. Mm -hmm. uh, normally what happens is you experience a disappointment, but you kind of know where you screwed up. You said, yeah, I didn't really do that well and that's why I didn't get the result that I wanted. In China, most of the disappointments are unexpected, and that's a China leadership dilemma. And in 2011, I received an expat assignment. That means a German company assigned me to be based in Shanghai as their Asia Pacific sales director. And prior to that assignment, I had already had 15 years of working in Asia and in China leading projects, leading market development efforts, working with suppliers, doing all of this business. Plus, I'm 100% bilingual in Mandarin Chinese. I speak Chinese as well. well I, my joke is I speak English almost as well as I speak Chinese. Uh, my wife is also tr from China, even though we met in the US. So I had all of the interaction experiences with Chinese at personal levels, professional levels, with no language barriers. And I have a business degree and an engineering degree, so I thought, I, well, basically the, the long story short is I was myopic. I lacked essential soft skills. I lacked awareness. And there were many things that I did not know I did not know, which I now, which are called unknown unknowns. That's a phrase from, uh, uh, who was it? Donald Rumsfeld, right? I mean, I know he made Donald it famous. Rumsfeld. I don't know if it yeah, was Donald it. Rumsfeld. Yeah, that was Donald Rumsfeld. He made it famous. So 
these are the things that I did not take into account when I first became an expat in China. And these are the things that I talk about in the China Leadership Dilemma podcast. Why, even if you're fluent in China, fluent in Chinese, you have experience in China, and uh, you still could experience unexpected disappointments if you lack the essential soft skills, which are awareness, which includes self-awareness, cultural awareness, and situational awareness, and empathy, which is an ability to understand what other people value and how other people think. Right, and you so you developed this understanding in your in your sales role for the German manufacturer, is that right? That's when you first came yeah. to become aware? I started developing these, yeah, I started developing these, I guess they would only be called instincts. I started developing these instincts, not only through this position that I had with this German company, but also what happened after that. So after I left that German company, I negotiated a voluntary separation because, uh, well, once you kind of proceed down a certain trajectory or a certain course of action, and you develop a, a reputation in a certain way, then it's hard to reverse course and say, wait a minute, let me start over. You, there's, there are no take backs or do overs in business. So uh, the situation was um, there were a lot of internal conflicts of interest and I didn't have the situational awareness and the empathy to be able to reconcile those with all the people that I was working with. And ultimately it became unsustainable for me to continue in that position. So I just, even though I was on the surface doing a good job, I knew there was no long-term outcome. So I negotiated a voluntary separation. Okay. And, then I started, and then I started consulting. I started consulting in China, uh, working with, I mean, these were projects, performance management system projects. We would be on site. Uh, the clients would be joint ventures between Western companies and Chinese state-owned enterprises. And I was on site leading behavioral change, implementing new systems and new processes. And when you do that at a state-owned enterprise, you also learn a lot about what works and what doesn't work. Okay. And then, and then after that, I became an entrepreneur. I started my own training, cross-cultural performance training, coaching, consulting company. And as an entrepreneur, trying to develop your own business in China, you get the whole spectrum of things that you have to be aware of in order to create a success in different types of context. And that's the culmination of all that experience is kind of what I help people do now. Okay, that makes sense. And I'm guessing a lot of people li listening to this might think, well, empathy, self-awareness, I mean, that's, that's important, whatever your context. So is there something special about the, the China context where they take on different meanings? Uh, well, it's, it's a combination of two. So first you have to have these, I call them skills or essential soft skills. First you have to have awareness and empathy. And then you have to apply those in the Chinese cultural context. So there's two aspects to that. Right. And what I've, dis and what I've discovered through working with people, because I, I do a lot of coaching and mentoring. Uh, and what I've discovered is most people really, there's two things that happen. Most people don't recognize that these essential soft skills are important. And most people don't have the right concept of actually how to develop those soft skills. And I'll give you, and I'll just get straight into it. So uh, it's, it's basically most people who actually help other people to develop these soft skills, uh, executive coaches, personal development coaches, and stuff like that. They all agree universally that you can't learn awareness and empathy. I can't give you a book or give you a tip and suddenly you'll be more empathetic or more self-aware. So what I've done is I've actually gone back and looked at what has helped me to develop greater awareness and empathy. And it comes down to two things that everybody has. One is imagination. So you have to use imagination in your interaction with other people, but you have to add something to that. It has to be positive imagination. You have to imagine the best instead of assuming the worst. And that is the key to actually developing empathy and awareness. The second is curiosity. So I'm not the first person to say this, but you have to have 
purpose-driven curiosity. You have to genuinely develop a desire to understand why somebody doesn't share your values, why somebody thinks differently, mm -hmm. why somebody behaves differently. For me, I'm conditioned myself. I could be talking to a racist and it would not affect me emotionally. I would just be trying to empathize with how did this person become racist and try to go deeper on how I might be able to reconcile that or still be able to communicate and work with this person, even though in principle, I'm, I'm disgusted by the fact that he's a racist, mm. right? And you have to think about it this way, purpose-driven curiosity, what is the opposite of purpose-driven curiosity? The opposite of purpose-driven curiosity is judgment. And being judgmental, especially in a cross-cultural context, is just, it kills any type of personal relation that you have. Once somebody perceives you as judging them as lower class or less human or, or not as sophisticated or whatever it is, you know, we Americans, we go all over the world and, and consciously or subconsciously or unconsciously, we kind of think we're on a pedestal or we're better. And, and that naturally leads to some type of judgment or bias that affects how other people perceive us as Americans. And if you don't, if you're not aware of that and you don't know how to reconcile that, then you're just not giving yourself the maximum advantage when you're in a cross-cultural environment, especially in China. Okay, yeah, no, I can, I can see that. You need to be acutely aware of how you might be perceived to be being, perceived to be judging someone else, right? Because, they, because of the fact you come from a different culture, there may be a bunch of biases you're not aware of, uh, both in yourself and on their side, that may cause them to think you're judging them in a way you don't expect or... Right. I mean, that's, that's like the foundation. And the other thing is you actually have to care. I mean, if you don't have positive imagination where you try to uh, understand why people would say the things they say and behave the way they behave, if you don't have purpose-driven curiosity and your natural inclination is just to believe that there are universal values. So the, the biggest example is, which is always, I just always use Americans because I'm an American. You know, Americans believe in a lot of kind of fundamental rights that are in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And one of those is, and this is a really hot political debate, but one of those is the right to bear arms. So in America, at least half the population believes passionately and emphatically that the right to bear arms is a fundamental God-given right to protect myself, to defend myself, or whatever. And if you ever have a debate with somebody in the NRA, it's not going to go well. Uh, so if you translate that perceived human right to China, it just simply doesn't exist because nobody in China has a gun. Nobody in China needs a gun. In fact, the majority of police officers in China don't carry guns. Like in the UK, right? I mean, we don't have that. Our bobbies, our bobbies don't have guns. Right. And you think about, so in the U.S. There's, or all over the world, unfortunately, now there's a lot of kind of terrorist events, mass shootings, especially in the U.S. There's a lot of mass shootings. Um, when there is a terrorist event in China, it's not carried out with guns. It's carried out with knives. <laughs> so that's just an illustration of this kind of mindset that is very destructive. So Americans, and that's just an example. I mean, it could be about religious freedom. It could be about freedom of speech. It could be about a whole plethora of things that we as Americans may believe are quote unquote, human universal values and universal rights. And then when you go to China, suddenly none of that translates. And if your mindset is, well, these should be universal, then you're setting yourself, setting yourself up for kind of a really bad vibe or bad relationship because fundamentally you can't accept what the other people believe, feel, and value. Right. And so what's an example of when you've sort of fallen into a, a trap as an American when you were first going there of an unexpected bad outcome, right, from a, from a stance you were taking? Well, there was, there's quite a lot when you, when you look back, but I think that the main one is, is – I understood in principle what what Chinese guanxi relationships actually means. 
So guanxi relationships is based on the system of reciprocity. Now what happens is most foreigners think guanxi and reciprocity equals corruption and the giving and receiving of money. So that is kind of, I mean, there is a lot of that, but that is a misunderstanding of actually what guanxi is. It's not just me giving you money and me taking kickbacks. Guanxi more revolves around the giving and receiving of space. Okay. In Chinese, it's called mianzi. So when I first relocated to Shanghai as an expat, the person who reported directly to me, um, I'm just going to use his first name. His, his name is Richard. Uh, he was the China sales manager. And I eventually kind of elevated his title to greater China sales director. I was responsible for all of Asia Pacific, and he was one of the people who reported to me. So everything that he was doing in my early time in China was, number one, giving me face, but number two, making me feel comfortable and making me feel good. So for example, he would pick me up at the airport uh, when I could just hire a taxi to take me. Uh, during lunch, instead of eating at the, the company cafeteria, he would say, let's go out to lunch, and he would pay. And I signed all his expense reports, and so it was kind of weird. I thought maybe he was going to pay and he was going to expense it, but he just wanted to treat me. And then he, he would discover what I, what I liked. So I like to play tennis. So he would reserve these indoor tennis courts, and he would play me in tennis. And every time I tried to pay, I said, well, this is just, you know, this is a non-business activity. Either we should take turns paying or we should just let me pay since I'm your boss. And he would just always push my hand aside and he would always just take care of me, so to speak. And then with his words, he would always basically say, you know, Gene, we're going to work together. We're going to create a great success in China. Don't worry about China. Leave that to me. Uh, you need to worry about what's going on in Korea and Japan. You need to worry about what's going on in Southeast Asia. Me and you, we got this China. Don't worry about it. I'm going to make you look good. And, and so I misunderstood all of his goodwill. He wasn't doing all of this goodwill because he liked me or he wanted to be my friend or he wanted me to succeed. He was actually doing all of this so he could kind of set me on the wrong path of doing the things that I should have been doing as the leader in Asia Pacific. And the truth was, is I came off to him as completely ethical and principled where I wouldn't accept any type of quote unquote exchange of money for exchange of favors. And he, in the background, he had some corruption or kickbacks by Western definitions going on. So my mistake was number one, not recognizing what his goodwill actually meant. And number two, not giving him the perception that he could trust me with unethical behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. So he ultimately made a choice. You know, if Gene ever finds out about this, then it's not going to be good. So I don't think I can trust Gene to be on my side because he seems to be so principled and so, quote unquote, kind of the German ethics or the global ethics about corruption and kickbacks and money that I don't think I can trust Gene if I let him know the secret. The opposite would have been, hey, Gene, now you're even higher level than me. Let's share in this extra income or or, or gray income that we can earn, you know, we can work together. The Germans will never know what's going on, right? The opposite of what I could have done is I could have given him, given him the perception that, yeah, I'm on board, right? Let's see what we can figure out to earn a little extra money for ourselves. You take care of the, the customers and I'll take care of the, the Germans and we're going to be able to have a gold mine, right? Now, if I had given him the perception, it's a balance, it's either that I could be part of his, in Western ideology, we would call it schemes, or I would be against it. 
And he got the idea that I would be 100% against it. Therefore, in his mind, the only way that he could succeed or to keep a good thing going was to create a difficult environment for me to survive without letting me know it. Sorry, a difficult environment for you to survive without, without what? Sorry, without? A difficult environment for me to survive without me knowing it. So I'll give you an uh, example. I say without of, you knowing it, yeah. Yeah, so I'll give you an example of his kind of underhanded tactics that I, that I discovered later. And by that time, it was too late because, you know, you, if you fight an all-out political battle, it's a lose-lose. So that's why I just decided to say, well, he has been with the company 10 years. The company kind of knows this is going on, so I'm just going to step back. This is not for me. But one of the things that he did, it was he set me on this wild goose chase. He basically said, you know, Gene, when we bring these products in from Germany, they have to, there's this value-added tax, and what we need to do is we need to import these products into a free trade zone so we can get them value-added tax-free. And then our local customers who are not re-exporting this, or even our customers who are exporting it, they don't have to pay that tax in advance and then request the commission drawback. It's just going to save a lot of things and it'll help us compete with the local competitors. That's what he told me. So me and my uh, marketing assistant, so I had a marketing assistant, we spent, that I hired, so she knew nothing about the history of the company. We spent several months doing research, talking with different consultants, finding out the benefits of establishing a trade office in a free trade zone in China. And then we have this sales meeting where the CEO of the company comes to China. My boss is there. Uh, the general manager of the factory is there. They're all there. And I'm doing my presentation. And then I get to this section and I say, I think we should set up a free trade zone because of X, Y, and Z. And the president of the company from Germany, the German, the German CEO, he said, Gene, maybe you didn't know, but we had a free trade zone a couple of years ago. And ultimately, it didn't make sense for us to keep it. So we closed it. So I was kind of set up to chase this down a rabbit hole and then make this presentation in front of all the executives in this company. And ultimately, it was really bad for me. It gave the perception that I'm not doing my job. I'm wasting the company's time, right? And, and, and it, this is the only thing that you know in hindsight. But when you connect the dots, you can see also in hindsight where the lack of awareness the lack of the some myopia that I might have had, you know, I had, you know, I figure I can be friends with Chinese people. I have tons of Chinese friends. Why can't this Richard guy just be a friend and we work together? I was completely oblivious to what he was actually thinking because I wasn't empathetic to the fact that if he had corrupt behaviors before me, those would be uncovered because it used to be when they visit customers, these Germans would fly in and everything would be translated and everything would be orchestrated. So the Germans would have no idea what was really going on. But for me, I had been calling on Chinese customers myself for 10 years. So I instantly know what's going on. And it never occurred to me why Richard never took me to visit customers because he didn't want me to find out what was going on. What he did was he diverted my attention to Japan, Korea, and Southeast Asia saying, well, these are mo more important and you need to take care of these markets first. Don't worry about China. I got it covered. And that was the myopia that I had. And that, that's what my podcast is about. You know, a lot of people say, what advice would you give yourself, your younger self? My podcast is actually me talking to myself in 2011 and teaching myself the essential soft skills that would have helped me to create a con different, completely different outcome of this kind of really good opportunity that I had as the Asia Pacific sales director for a German multinational company. Okay. But then, so if I play devil advocate a bit, given that story, one, one might say, well, hang on, um, you kind of got played by this guy who tried to keep you sweet with some, uh, with, with treating you well. Well, that might happen in any culture. So is yes. there a few rules of thumb 
the, for, for listeners here who maybe, you know, maybe they, they would like to go work in China or that's going to happen for them at some time in the future. Do you have a few takeaways for people that, to be watchful of when they enter, enter the Chinese yeah. culture? Yeah, that's actually a great question. So if you just look at my example, so I never, you know, if normally if that happens to somebody, they would be really pissed off and almost kind of spiteful and revengeful and, and want to get back at this, this person. But for me, uh, there was absolutely none of that. Uh, so the, the advice that I would give or the tips that I would give is number one is don't, you cannot judge how people behave in China, even as bad as it may be in our Western mind. So what this Richard guy did to me would be almost unspeakable uh, if we were both in America and he would, I mean, some people might resort to violence if something like that happened, right? But in China, you have to have a different mindset. I have to be empathetic to why he did that. You know, if I didn't give him the perception that I, he could be, that I could be trusted with unethical behavior, what do I expect him to do? His whole family and his whole livelihood depends on him being able to do this. And he's been doing this for the last 10 years. And he's basically been Mr. China because nobody in this German company at the higher level really speaks any Chinese or understands the Chinese market. So they just 100% rely on this one guy for all of the things. And then what am I gonna do? I'm gonna come in and say, nope, you cannot have these relationships with all of our key accounts. Right? right. So what I did is I didn't give him the right perception of what I was willing to do and my level of flexibility. And that goes directly to the point that I said before. I gave him the perception that I was a principled American with no compromise in my principles, no flexibility in my principles. And that principle is about ethics and doing business. Right. So if I had a softer position on that, then we could have had a totally different outcome. We could have actually understood what was going on. And if there were risks of us being caught or I could have presented risks for us to get caught and then we could slowly deconstructed and ultimately eliminated the unethical behavior, saving everybody's face, saving everybody's job and bridging a path to something that ultimately would have been successful for both of us and the company but I wasn't able to do that. I didn't have the holistic view of kind of what was going on. Right. So had you come in with uh, giving him the perception that you were open, totally open-minded to what his values might be and what his behaviors were, and you were not a, found a way for him to perceive you not as being a threat, then it may have been a different outcome. Yes. What it, what it ultimately meant was, we could have actually had a conversation about the things that divided us. Yeah. The actual result was we never had that conversation. In fact, we've still never had that conversation to this day. The only reason I know what was going on is I kind of figured out what was going on and then I could connect his behaviors, right? Even to this day, we have never had that conversation. In fact, when I negotiated a separation with my boss back in Germany, uh, I just, we negotiated a separation and I did a transition within a couple of days or might've been one week. And then I just left very, very quietly. Richard and I did not have a single conversation about, you know, why are you leaving? What's gonna happen next? We did not have, a, it just basically, I announced to the team that I had resigned. I didn't give a reason why. And then I just left quietly and I never looked back. Interesting. And there was no. no hard feelings, so to speak. There were no, there was no kind of spider revenge that I had to figure out how to expose this guy and get back to him. There was none of that. It was just, this was not the right fit for me. And I did not have the wherewithal to make this a successful venture. And now I've learned how to do that. So if I had was given a similar opportunity in the future, I would approach it completely differently. Hmm. The business side and the strategic side would be identical, but the 
individual relations, even the tactics would have been similar, but how I communicate individually with the different stakeholders, that's what it would have changed. Because my, what I call AMA values, my attitude, mindset, and approach, this is what influences how other people perceive you. People don't perceive your knowledge and your experience. People don't even perceive whether you have soft skills or not, whether you're empathetic or not. They perceive your attitude, your mindset, and your approach. They perceive your behaviors, how you react, how you respond. What is your facial expression when you receive bad news or when you encounter something that, that, that you, you disapprove of? That's what they perceive. And I was not able to create the right perceptions with all of the stakeholders. And now I've developed a system and a methodology and frameworks and tools to help people develop their own system of improving perceptions. And I just call it becoming a master of cross-cultural performance because everything is about like, you know, cross-cultural situation doesn't have to be between, between a Westerner and somebody in China. There's between genders, there is a cross-cultural dynamic, right? Between you and your spouse, you share fundamentally different values because the difference between being a man and being a woman, right? Cross-cultural performance actually helps with not just intercultural relationships, but gender different relationships. Right. I've, I've employed my own teachings to achieve much, much greater harmony in my own marriage. Ryan, you mentioned before the show that one of the triggers for you developing your empathy skills was a period in your second marriage, right? Early in your second marriage, and you found yourself being aggressive and you, you, you found a need to work on yourself there. Is that right? Well, it's absolutely. So I, this is, again, myopia. So I think I'm pretty calm. I think it's difficult to get me angry. I think I have, I think I have a high degree of emotional intelligence. But in the mo so the, the, the typical phrase is we all have our limits. Okay. So sometimes in the past, when I was in these kind of disagreements with my wife that escalated, you know, the things that would come out of her mouth from my Western mind, I would just think these are ridiculous. How could you possibly say these things? How could you possibly think these things? And eventually, I would tip, which means I would lose my control and I would start screaming and yelling and being angry, right? Which ultimately doesn't help anything. It just makes things worse. And over time, what I discovered is I lacked awareness and empathy to my wife. So I lacked, so sometimes when I say something, it gives her a very, very negative kind of almost angry reaction. And for me, I think I'm just being sensible. I'm just being logical. And I'm not empathetic to why it causes a negative reaction. I'll just give you a really small example. For example, Chinese people never expect them to be consistent because Chinese people by culture are more emotional. Okay, so often uh, in the past when we escalating arguments, I might bring up something that she said in the past as a reason why she shouldn't have this perception now in the present. So I would try, it would always be like using her own words against her in our argument, right? And you don't have to be from different cultures to know that that never works, <laughs> right? Trying to use somebody's own words in the past kind of against them in a debate or an argument. And this is just a lack of awareness, a lack of empathy, right? Once I started to understand that doing that didn't make things better, didn't make me right, it actually made things worse, then I stopped doing that. And I started taking more responsibility for my own words and actions. Not that I'm acknowledging that I'm wrong, but I'm acknowledging that this is creating a bad feeling for her in the context of what she values and what she believes. And if you notice, if I'm noticing all of our arguments or disagreements over the course of time, I can just see that the length, duration, and intensity is just going from 
an all-nighter to just now, just a couple minutes, I've been able to kind of resolve this disagreement. Right. That's very interesting. And that sounds very similar to what to, I've heard Sam Harris talk about the benefits of meditation. Yeah, if you're aware of Sam Harris, he's another podcaster and writer. And he says that the, the half-life of his anger has, has reduced yeah. So, so the, the, the length of time he remains angry, angry has gone down. It sounds like you've had found something similar, not through meditation, but through developing this, this empathy. Yeah, it's developing empathy and it's developing awareness. There's more yeah. awareness of yourself. And it's, it, it might be the same results as meditation, but what has happened is that I've become very, I guess the, the classic way to describe it is I've become very thick-skinned. It's just... You know, I don't, exp I don't really care what people think in the context of when they're being negative. In fact, I almost expect it. And because I don't expect people to always like me or always think that I'm behaving properly, then when they react negatively, for me, it's expected, and then I can more quickly turn it around. So, for example, um, I know that sometimes or oftentimes, I don't give people a great perception of me because they have the perception that I always think I'm right. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I'm sure many of us can relate to that one. <laughs> yeah, so, but what I'm aware of is I have to be aware of why that happens. And then I have to be able to kind of understand how I can explain my position in a way with my attitude, mindset, and approach that is more palatable to the people that are listening. So I always try to, before I say anything, I always qualify my statement with that there is no right and there is no wrong. There is no good and there is no bad. It's not about right or wrong, good or bad. It's only about, it's all about context and perspective. My opinion about this topic is about the context of what I'm trying to do. It's not about what you're doing. In the context of what you're trying to achieve, it could be completely wrong, and I fully acknowledge that. Now, that takes a lot of words, but thinking that way naturally or subconsciously will change the way that people perceive your words. They will think you're less egotistical and less full of yourself, even though that still happens, but it diminishes. And it's not so much that it diminishes in the first impression we're meeting for the first time and I'm giving you an opinion about something and you're thinking, wow, that guy's really confident. It diminishes over time as we build a relationship because you start to see that uh, it's only in the context of one specific thing that I've experienced, but I'm completely open-minded and acknowledge that it does not apply in all situations. Right. And my motivation is positive. I'm trying to either help you, deliver value to you, or at the minimum, achieve a win-win for both of us. There's nothing selfish about where my opinion comes from and why I say what I say. Over time, that helps to strengthen the relationship that you're building with somebody. But it could filter some people of not even wanting to deal with you to begin with. But for me, that's okay. Uh, that's what I have to live with. There's the pros and the cons. There's the upside and the downside to how you choose to behave. And then you just have to be aware of that. And it reminds me of another guest we had on the show, a colleague of mine, Odi Ashheim. And he has this approach where wherever he makes an assertion, he always prefaces it with, and this is not the truth. And here's my position. Uh, and I think it, it sounds similar to what you're saying is that you, you, you make it clear that this is true for you in your context and it may not necessarily be for them true for them in their context. You can see how that's powerful. Right. And there's also a level of awareness where, so every time we're having a conversation or with anybody, most people naturally have an opinion of how the other person could do something better or they always have a tip or a suggestion. Right. And, and a lot of times my tip and my suggestion is just, just at the surface trying to get out. And what I have to do is I have to manage that where I tell myself, you know, if they didn't ask for your opinion, 
they probably don't care for your opinion, even if this might help them. And especially when you go to a cross-cultural environment, it's just sensible to withhold a lot of your opinions and listen more. Listening mm -hmm. is much more important than giving opinions. And if you can just listen more, not have this compulsion or compelling desire to share your knowledge and give your opinion, then you'll be much better off over time in the relationships that you're trying to cultivate. Yeah. It's almost like an addiction, isn't it? It's so, yeah, I, I totally relate to that. You know, like I'm just this sort of suggestion making machine. And it's, it takes, when I catch myself, it takes real sort of force to keep that suggestion down, right? To keep that. <laughs> it's human nature. It's being human. It's what your podcast is about. It's being human. So when you flip that around, I don't judge people if they give me their opinion. And I, even though it's wasting a lot of time, I can condition myself to be patient, to try to listen and find nuances of good in what they're saying and not be annoyed. So it works in both directions. It's giving fewer opinions, but being more empathetic and accommodating towards other people's opinions. And that's even harder. Right. <laughs> really hard. Yeah. <laughs> right, especially if you think, well, you don't, you didn't ask me any questions. How do you really know what I'm trying to do? You should ask me more questions before you come out, come in with your opinion. But that's just not how the mind works. Right, and I, I, I could, that's totally hit me actually because I had a very tense uh, interaction with my uh, with my partner's mother, and she just kept making suggestions at me. Yeah. And eventually, I was just like, <laughs> "Stop suggesting things! Just stop suggesting things!" And uh, I can really see that I could have been more graceful. What you're saying is sometimes we just have to, there's something about accepting the suggestions and saying, yeah, okay, good suggestion. And right, and, and rolling with the suggestions and rolling with the opinions and not well, that, necessarily well, reacting to them. Yeah, rolling with the opinions, in my view, is step one or level one if you talk about training. Level two is using your words and your attitude, mindset, and approach to change the conversation, right? If you're somebody's mother-in-law is giving you a lot of tips, a lot of tips, a lot of tips, there are subtle ways that you can change this conversation. You know, you can rhetorically kind of redirect her recommendation back at her own son or at her own self or at her husband on, can you give me an example of how this works here or that, there, there. And then that conversation has been redirected Instead of opinions coming at you or suggestions coming at you, it just becomes an analysis of how she is adopting her own words of wisdom. And if you're tactful enough, that person doesn't even realize it. Right. It's like you've done a judo move and they don't even realize they're on their ass. Right. And, and that's the, I've, I, a lot, of, I developed this like 10 or 15 years ago. I call it the art of rhetorical interactions. Uh, it's just basically understand how rhetoric doesn't have any meaning, but you can utilize it to your advantage. <laughs> rhetoric doesn't have any meaning, but you can utilize it to your advantage. Yeah. So what do you mean by rhetoric doesn't have any meaning? It just doesn't have any meaning because it's just rhetoric. Uh, you can just look at the political discourse in the U.S. It doesn't matter what side you're on, if you're red or you're blue, you're conservative or you're liberal. The things that the pundits say, it's just rhetoric, right? So it's almost irrelevant what is coming out of both sides, okay? But if you were having an individual conversation with one of them and they started using their rhetoric on you, then that's an opportunity to really turn that around and find out what that person really thinks beyond the rhetoric. Right. So the rhetoric itself is irrelevant. You shouldn't even consider. What happens is people get emotional when they hear rhetoric that is against their own values or against their own beliefs. What I teach people, and this is especially true in a cross-cultural environment, it's irrelevant. Who cares what somebody's rhetoric is? Right? When you react to rhetoric, that demonstrates a low level of emotional intelligence. Yeah, but hang on, where I'm, I'm really resisting that idea because I'm thinking, yeah, but surely there's some seed of meaning or truth or intent behind that rhetoric, even if it's difficult to, to see. There absolutely is. Behind rhetoric is, rhetoric is, unless you're a paid pundit, 
rhetoric is a reflection of somebody's core values and core beliefs. Okay. So how can so, you say that and say it's meaningless? Like this is where I'm stuck. Oh, no, no. It's meaningless in the context of as what I mean that the context is, it's meaningless, meaning that you should not react to it. And you should okay. especially not react to it emotionally with your own rhetoric. <laughs> you should just take somebody's rhetoric as information. And then with that insight, with that knowledge, make an adjustment to your attitude, mindset, and approach, which is how you respond. And you have to think about the goal of any interaction between two people is to hopefully develop greater trust, develop common bonds, develop a way forward where both of you can actually work together or be friends even, right? And the mindset is, if it's rhetoric, it's irrelevant. I'm not gonna react to it. It's not irrelevant in the context that it has no meaning. It's irrelevant in the context of, I should not consider that rhetoric in how I respond. Okay. It's the difference between linear thinking and circular thinking. So what happens, we as Westerners, generally speaking, we think in a more linear fashion. There's a cause and an effect, right? So we should do this A when B happens. This is the goal that we're trying to achieve and everything that we're doing is leading up to this goal. Chinese people in general think more circular. So what happens is, is if you're not empathetic to the core of what they believe and what they value in their culture and you react to the manifestations of their culture around the periphery of the circle, then you begin an endless debate that has no winnable outcome. And what you perceive at the surface of somebody's persona or what somebody says, what's at that surface can also be classified as their rhetoric. But what you want to engage is not their rhetoric, which I say is irrelevant. What you want to gauge is their core. Right? Talk about what they really think and what they really believe in a way that you're empathetic to why they think that and why they believe that. Then you have a much higher probability of actually making a connection that's meaningful instead of talking over each other. You say what you say, if I'm courteous, I wait for you to finish and then I come directly back with what I wanna say. Neither one of us are listening to each other, okay? There's, there's some author or some influencer that basically talks about the importance of listening and communication and they started talking about the difference between listening and active listening. Right. What I do is I go beyond active listening and I get into proactive listening. That's a term that I want to try to coin. And proactive listening means this is the purpose-driven curiosity. You're listening with the purpose-driven curiosity to empathize with why they're saying what they're saying. And you're devoid of the emotional attachment of if they say something that is contrary to what you believe. You don't feel the urge to immediately respond to that. Right. And I'm just I'm thinking back to the, this situation with the, the, the mother of my partner. And I'm like, I'm reacting to all these suggestions and thinking, no, I don't know that suggestion. I don't know that suggestion. I really don't like that suggestion. And so I, I build up this, this pressure where it's like I have to, t to say stop. Whereas if I'd allow those to sort of wash over me and ignore the rhetoric and the opinions as... Um, and, and then have purpose-driven curiosity to what's behind them and, and, as you say, maybe inquire into an analysis of how she might have applied them, then, then that, would have very, that would have changed the nature of the, of the interaction. I can really see that. Absolutely. It's almost, like being your own, it's almost like being your own psychiatrist, right? When this friend's mother is doing this and you're getting annoyed or you're, or, or, you're, or you're feeling that you don't want to engage in this type of acceptance of opinions, just get to the core of where her suggestions come from and try to segue into a conversation about why she feels the way she feels in which it gives her a pathway out. You always have to give the people a pathway out. If they're in this, if they're in this engagement where they're just giving you a lot of opinions, 
they're not going to stop unless you give them a pathway out. You have to use your awareness and, and empathy to lead her to somewhere else. And you can't do that by engaging the rhetoric or even reacting to the rhetoric. You have to understand the core of why this mother might have these opinions rightly or wrongly and give her a path out to talk about something in a different context. Yeah. And then the conversation can shift. Right. Okay. That, that is what I call the art of rhetorical interaction. It's not something that I can really teach, but only thing that I know is when you connect the essential soft skills that matter with a purpose-driven curiosity and a positive imagination to all of your interactions and you start to observe and reflect on the outcomes that were actually that you actually experienced, then you can start to figure out, hmm, if I made this adjustment here, it might have been different. And then you can try it the next time. And then if you get a different reaction, then that builds over time. Initially, it's very difficult. It's like forcing yourself. But then as you start getting a, a better experience with by forcing yourself to behave a certain way, eventually it becomes natural. Right. For me, it's become so natural that somebody could to say a racist statement towards me at me, and it's almost like it doesn't bother me. Right. And this is this leads back to right at the start of the podcast. Yeah. The, yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's why I call it uh, cross cultural performance mastery. It takes time to develop these skills and to master how to utilize these skills to improve perceptions and, and, and achieve the goals that you want. Right. And I think some of the listeners may be interested about this difference between linear and circular thinking. Um, so I get the, the linear part of this, right? A plus B equals C, and you know we tend to tend to think in in cause and in terms of cause and effect. So circular thinking. So yeah, just just explain a little bit about how that differs and and how we, I suppose, manage it if we've if we've come from a linear thinking Western mindset. Yeah. Well. You know, linear and circular is just a, 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 a way to describe two different way, two different personality types. And uh, so instead of doing a cultural analogy, let, let's just do a gender analogy. So let's say you and your wife, or me and my wife, were having kind of disagreement. And usually the worst fights between spouses was triggered by something very, very insignificant. You know, our worst fights isn't like I'm smoking in the house or I had an affair. <laughs> the, the, the worst fights were triggered by something as simple as, you know, I didn't hang the towel or I left the toilet seat open. So there are two, I'm going to make two generalizations and I hate making generalizations. But there are two generalizations that I'm going to make uh, for the sake of this example. One is Chinese people are more emotional culturally um and the second is women are more emotionally because of their gender and they're especially more emotional at certain times of the month okay so what you have to do is when something really insignificant triggers a negative response in your significant other if you're a man in this case in your wife what most people naturally do is they react. They say, why is that a big deal? Or no, I, you know that, I don't think I did something wrong. That, why do you even care about that? So that is reacting to what is happening in the surface. When somebody is emotional, regardless of the culture, regardless of the sex, regardless of the religion, the emotions are what manifest on the surface. So anybody who is emotional, anybody who is angry, anybody who is upset, you can think of that person as suddenly being a circular thinker. And when you react to what you perceive on the surface, you will never get to the core of the issue. The only way to de-escalate a spiraling, escalating argument is to bypass the circle, go straight to the center. And that works with my wife because I don't react to what she's reacting to. I go straight to what has made her feel bad to begin with. And I address that regardless of whether I think I did anything wrong or not. 
And that's a microcosm of what happens in China when you're, even if it's a business decision, you will find that people are very kind of, they're reacting what Westerners will say very superficially because Chinese have this culture of giving face, which means if you're a foreigner in China and you're meeting your sales team or meeting your team for the very first time, everybody in China is going to tell you what you want to hear, tell you niceties, uh, praise you for this, praise you for that. And then the myopic foreign manager doesn't realize anything's wrong and still problems start popping up and they don't understand why. And that's just a microcosm of thinking that what you perceive on the surface is reflective of what somebody's core beliefs are. So in that example, uh, what you perceive on the surface is a lot of praise, a lot of kind words, a lot of graciousness, a lot of uh, acknowledgement and agreement of, of how great it is to have you in China to support us and do all that. What you're not empathetic towards is what people actually feel in their core and the fact that they're saying all of these things because it's cultural. What's even worse is when you become judgmental. Judgmental is, wow, these Chinese people are really disingenuous. In fact, some people go as far as to call Chinese people liars because they say all of this stuff to give you face. That's even worse, right? The, the better approach is not to judge it, which is the opposite of purpose-driven curiosity. The, 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 the right approach is to be empathetic to the core, understand where it's coming from, and then carve a pathway out. It's like with the mother, carve a pathway out to a different conversation. Or I could see it even with you with Richard, right? If you'd have taken that approach, you might have got to the core of why he was taking paying for your tennis sessions and, and all the rest of it, right? Absolutely. So yeah. I was reacting to everything at the core. I was either judging it or I was reacting to it. And a lot of it, a lot of giving face can also be kind of a form of rhetoric, which, which I always have to, when I'm coaching foreigners going to China, is really that you really have to get past all that. Don't judge it for positive or negative, right? Don't think it's disingenuous and don't think Chinese people are liars, but also don't look at it as, you're doing the right thing and they think highly of you. It's irrelevant. All of those, all of those perceptions are irrelevant. The only thing that is relevant is what this person truly feels at the core of who he or she is and how do you carve out a bridge for that person to escape the rhetoric, mm -hmm. escape the meaningless conversations that lead to nothing. You have to carve a way out. Even with the mother, if you carve a way out, maybe there's an interesting backstory that you can... You're right. About. Exactly. They, that could have opened a whole world of my understanding of her that, who knows, could have really deep I mean, relationship. Yeah. She may have a lot of experience that ultimately could be beneficial if she didn't encapsulate those in suggestions. Right. Exactly. Now I can see. Right? So, so that is just giving people an opportunity to build a better relationship with you and vice versa. Yeah, now I can see that. Okay, Gene, we're getting towards the end. And uh, so I always ask this to my guests, a final question um, for you, uh, Gene Shu, what does it mean to be human? Well, I think I actually answered this question, you know, somebody asked me what it's like to be a man. And my answer was, well, I don't know what it's like to be a woman. So asking me that question is, what is it like to be myself? I think we're all humans. And being human is just being myself. And being human mainly is two things. One, being human means you're not perfect. Being human means you make mistakes. Being human means you don't know everything. You never know everything. To me, that's being human. But there's another important aspect to being human is being human should include how you treat other humans. And the things that I'm trying to help people develop, hopefully will improve how we as being human treat other people 
who are also just being human? And how do we bridge those connections to help people form better relationships? And that's especially important in cross-cultural business. Brilliant, thank you so much. All right, so for people who want to get more of, of Gene and more of your work, where, where's, where's best to find you? Well, I have a business website, which is emechina.us. And I just registered my personal website where I'm going to be sharing all of my videos, my podcasts, and my blogs. It's just my name, G-E-N-E-J-H-S-U.com. And I'll, I'll send you the links and hopefully you can... Yeah, we'll put it in the description. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of your day in, in sunny LA. And uh, yeah, thank, thank you for being human. Thank you. Well, thank you for having, on, having me on the show, Richard. Uh, this was an amazing conversation. I mean, you brought out things that I think not only your audience, but my audience will be very interested to hear about. Awesome. All right. Thank you for your time. Thank you. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.